a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. It is time to revel in wrong think, and I guess it's fitting, therefore, that my friend Eric Peters is joining us from epautos.com. Hi, Eric. Hey, Brian. How's it going? You know, I asked you that same question as we as we yep. connected up this morning, and you said I'm trying to keep a stiff upper lip, which yes. I think that's that's probably the the best answer anybody could give in times like these. Yeah, yeah, I have the bad taste to continue to insist that I'm not sick, which which is almost a revolutionary act in the sickness gulag that the United States has become. Yeah, the Borg, the uh, the COVID nineteen Borg, is really working overtime to assimilate us. And uh, by far, you are you are one of the most faithful resistors. Uh, tell me what things look like in your home state of Virginia right now. Uh, wh- where do you stand in terms of lockdowns, mask mandates, et cetera? Well, it's a little eerie because a couple of weeks ago, I guess it's been about two weeks, uh, the Gesundheitsführer of Virginia, uh, Ralph Northam, uh, decreeth that uh, we shall have gatherings no larger than 25 people, and there will be more enforcement of the mandates uh, requiring the wearing of the holy rag, aka the, fi- the face diaper, and I grit my te- I gritted my teeth for that. Uh, that was announced on a Sunday, and I was fully expecting that I would no longer be able to go into any store, and that my gym would be shut down, um, and so on. But actually, nothing really has changed. There's no visible enforcement, or at least there's no more visible enforcement than there was prior. There's just a lot of social pressure to put on the holy rag. When I go to my local supermarket, practically everybody is wearing the holy rag. When I go to my gym, practically nobody is wearing the holy rag because it's a different group of people. So it's still quite surreal. You see the face diapered freaks just about everywhere you go, even though um, people understand, or at least I would assume they understand, that they don't have to wear them if they don't want to, and yet they do. I think one of the most remarkable things I've seen in the last week was, uh, I, I think it was John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education, wrote an article about a study in Denmark, and it studied over a thousand different patients. They uh, they tested essentially the efficacy of masks, wanted to yeah. see, do masks actually stop the transmission of, of COVID-19? And, and what the study revealed was whether people wore masks or not, the same number in, in both the control group and, and the, the, the other groups, still got the the disease. In other words, the masks were not the panacea that we were told. But what was really remarkable, Eric, was like the New York Times reported that, the headline said, you know, initially, you know, the uh, Danish study shows masks uh, may not make that big of a difference. And then they mm-hmm. went back a short time later and edited the headline to say, but you should still wear one. And, of course. And so that seems to be the, the narrative that uh, the media has chosen to mm-hmm. embrace, and they're, they're going to ride it right into the ground. Well, sure, because it's an icon of this new religion. And by the way, I'm going to walk it back a little bit farther. How does a mask work uh, as far as transmitting the spread of any sickness when the wearer isn't sick? Oh, that's a good point. You know, I mean, this is what I've been trying to point out to people lately. Look, I'm not sick, so putting me in a moon suit serves no purpose. And I refuse to accept the 
this this argument that well you could be sick you might be an asymptomatic carrier well I could be a rapist you know I'm a pretty big guy maybe I could beat the crap out of you too so maybe I should have to wear handcuffs all the time that's outrageous it's tyrannical it's open-ended it means that basically everybody is to pre- be presumed a plague carrier despite uh, in the in the absence of any evidence that they're sick and that's a despicable loathsome idea and I will not bow to that well, and as you have, have documented for us over the last several months and weeks, there's a price that comes with, with making that principled stand, mm-hmm. refusing. You're not imposing yourself on anybody else. You're just refusing to play along with the, yes. you know, the, the psychosis that, uh, that a lot of people mm-hmm. have bought into. But it, yep. it, it puts a price on your head. Well, it does. Uh, and another facet of this that I'd like to talk about, too, I think uh, our esteemed orange man made a catastrophic error when he didn't come out forcefully against this, because uh, the enforcement of the holy rag is also a way to suppress dissent with the whole sickness cult. The, the, the main purpose of make, getting everybody to wear one of these things is to convey the visual impression that everybody agrees that we're in the midst of the black death and we're all going to die unless we wear the diaper. And also, it served as a way uh, to make it look like everybody agreed with Joe Biden. If the mandates had not come along, you would probably have seen half or more of the populace not wearing the face diaper, and that would have been a very visual symbol of the political divide in this country. Instead, you see everybody just about wearing the diaper, which makes it look like everybody agrees with, with Dementia Joe, that, that you know people are going to die, we're all dead, we're going to die, got to lock down the country, got to lock down the country. It's a self-serving, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's, well, these are hard times for people who are serious about being free people. Talk to me about, you had an article about... Uh, Hacking at the root, and, yeah. and ex- explain what, what's the what's the the story behind that that phrase, hacking at the root. Well, you and I have talked many times about the rock and the hard place that many businesses find themselves in, where even if the owner opposes this and doesn't want to be a participant in sickness kabuki, they are under the threat of having OSHA, the local Gesundheitsführers, come in, shut them down, take away their license to do business. And that's where we get it striking at the root. How did it happen? How is it that in America, ostensibly a free country, you have to have permission from the government to exchange freely uh, in, in, good, in, in, in the, 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 the buying and selling of goods and services? It's the craziest thing that somehow this has become not a right to transact business, but some kind of a permission that is revocable at the whim of the government. So now that you've gotten to beg permission from the government in order to do business, you've put yourself at the mercy of the government, which can make you its own little enforcement agent. And that's exactly what's happened. If it were possible simply to open your business and transact freely, and you didn't have to ask permission, these mandates that have been issued by the Gesundheitsführers would have no force whatsoever. Individual business owners would be free to decide on their own whether they thought uh, it was judicious and merited to, to require their, their clientele to put on a face diaper or not. But as it stands, pretty much every business is compelled to do it because they are, in fact, agents of the government at this point. It's pretty scary. I was telling my listeners last week I learned that uh, in my home state of Utah, the health department is sending out, I don't know what to call them, inspectors, spies, compliance enforcers. Basically, they're sending yep. people out to test whether or not businesses are actually having their employees wear the face mask. But, sure. but even worse, and this is the part that got me, they are also testing to see whether those businesses will say something to customers who come into their, their place of business without a mask. 
They're not saying right. they're not saying you have to kick them out, but they want them to say, you know, the state is under a statewide mask mandate, and mm-hmm. just remind them. And and to me, the, the threat. It, by the way, there's a threat of we'll, we'll fine you, and it could be like up to of a course. ten thousand dollar fine if you're not enforcing this on your customers, mm-hmm. which seems like a really mm-hmm. backdoor way to 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 be an, an enforcer. They're they're dragooning people. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just a it's a it's a natural extrapolation from something that's existed for generations. All businesses have to serve as the de facto tax collector for the government too, don't they? Sure. Yeah. So you know we've accepted this. It's been in place now for longer than you and I have been alive, and that's what I mean by striking at the root. I think it's time to re-examine this business uh, of having to ask permission in order to engage in legitimate commerce. If I want to offer something for sale and if somebody wants to offer, uh, agrees to buy it, that is something that should be entirely between the, the consenting parties involved. It should be absolutely none of the government's business whatsoever. And that's a lesson that just is going to have to be relearned by the American people if America is ever going to be a free country again. Well, I did see a pretty notable act of resistance. I believe it was in Buffalo, New York. Maybe you've seen the video of the business owners with the health department person and the sheriff's deputies, and they're telling them, you don't have a warrant. You need to get out of here and tell them the deputies. You need to be arresting these people for trespassing. That was wonderful. Uh, They did the right thing. They got uh, a fairly large group of people, and they stood their ground, and they morally shamed these thugs who were wearing their diapers, of course, and the uh, and the enforcer with her little OSHA clipboard. I'm here to make sure everybody's safe and wearing their diaper. And they they just berated them, lectured them, told them that they were basically being you know tyrannical thugs by enforcing these decrees, and that they had no business being inside a private business. And that gets at it. They didn't really articulate the whole thing about the licenses. But a business is a privately owned thing. You own a business, you open it, it's your business. And you offer your goods, your services. People aren't forced to do business with you. If they wish to do business with you, they can do so. And that, in a free country, should be sacrosanct. You should not have to beg permission in order to engage in the the exchange of goods and services. Hear, hear. We're coming up on our break here, so we will take a quick time out, pay a couple of bills. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. When we come back, we have a couple of other things to talk about, in including uh, we're going to talk about the uh, current uh, election melodrama that's going on, but more importantly, how can we sort fact from fiction in a time when deceit is almost universal? We'll be back in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, I've been wanting to pick your brain on this as uh, as the election aftermath has unfolded. Mm -hmm. Confusion doesn't begin to describe... My state of mind as I try Mm -hmm. to keep track of it all. Give me your thoughts on what we have seen since Election Day and where things seem to be headed. Uh, What's what's your take? Well, my take is opacity. You know, we haven't seen much of anything, have we? 
We've heard assertions from both sides. The media has anointed Biden, the president select, as I like to style him. And meanwhile, Trump continues to say that the election was rigged and that there was fraud, which there probably was. However, we have yet to see any real firm substantiation of that. You know, we've got little bits and pieces of things, but that happens in every election. Now, his argument or the argument of his legal team is that we can't reveal this stuff yet. This is a legal matter. It has to be processed by the courts. And I suppose there's something to that. However, I wish that they would put something out there if indeed there is something that they've really got that's tangible. My biggest problem, uh, I think the problem that probably a lot of Americans who are fair-minded will have with what went on, is how it is that our votes are counted by these obscure electronic voting machines that are controlled by a private company that, that is of dubious, sketchy origins and may or may not have some sort of a partisan dog in this game. You know, that, that bothers me. I don't understand why that, that isn't handled in a more objective way. I don't understand why, given everything that's gone on this year and what everybody could see was coming, uh, protocols weren't put into place prior to the election to see to it by independent third-party observers, by having both sides have their people at, at polling places to watch what was going on, make sure there weren't any shenanigans. And the fact that none of that was done was, in my opinion, inexcusable. Well, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm a tinfoil hat wearer here, but when the media insists, no, 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 there is absolutely no proof of, uh, I think they're using the phrase widespread voter yeah. fraud or, or inaccuracies, and, and the political class is backing it up. It's clear to me, or at least it seems clear to me, there's a narrative that we're supposed to believe, and, and of course the fact-checkers on Twitter and Facebook keep telling us, yeah. well, this is disputed, but, uh, but I'm not buying it, if, if only because the people who have made a habit of lying to me a lot over the years seem to be insisting, no, 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 this is what you have to think, which makes me go, well, um, sure. there must be falsehood at work here. Well, there's that, and there's just also, again, the cognitive dissonance, minimally, and the disingenuousness. We all know, if you're not delusional, that if the, if the, if the situation had been reversed, let us say, and Trump uh, had appeared to have won the election, but there were irregularities, do you think the left would be saying, oh, no, we, we just need an orderly transition of power. This is outrageous. You know, we shouldn't be doing any of this. They would be screaming bloody murder. There would be riots in the streets. And they're not honest enough to, to admit that, which is part of what makes them so despicable, in my opinion. Well, and, and to me, that's, that's what also helps make the case that maybe this does deserve a closer look. Because you look at the way the left reacted four years ago when there weren't mm -hmm. allegations of widespread fraud. Now, the allegation of, well, Russia interfered by buying Facebook ads or something like that, which they then prosecuted and, and pushed out over the next three years. Yep. But... They, they did not accept the results. They did everything in their power, both the press as well as the political left, including a lot of Republicans, tried to get Trump out of office. And yet we're supposed to believe that. But this election was just even-handed and fair, and nobody would have thought of trying to game the system in any way. Yeah, it serves no one's interest, no one's interest including the left, by the way, because let's assume, just for the sake of discussion, that the election was more or less above board and uh, Biden legitimately won. Well, he now will look to, what, 80 million uh, people as a fraudulent and illegitimate president. And that's, that's politically, socially, culturally dynamite, explosive. Uh, they have created a, a, a scenario, a dynamic, in which the government is losing any legitimacy. And we are now literally uh, going to live in a banana republic. We might as well have an El Presidente standing on the balcony saying, I give you this, that, and the other thing, like Gilligan did back in the <laughs> 60s. Remember that? <laughs> Yeah. Now, 
let's let's look at the other side of the coin here too, and that is not only is government losing legitimacy, but uh, I'm seeing great doubt expressed by more Americans than ever in the media, the mass media. I think that's actually a good thing. No question. Absolutely. And there's widespread disillusionment uh, and frustration. I think we talked before about this other dynamic that's unfolding where because of the way the elections work, these, these densely populated urban areas, like in my state, for example, northern Virginia essentially has a political lock on the state. So a geographic minority, uh, a couple of cities, a couple of counties in the very northern part of the state, dictate politics to 90% of the state, which has been effectively disfranchised. It has no vote. Well, it can vote, but it doesn't matter. Whatever they vote, uh, the, the residents of northern Virginia are going to outvote them. So whatever happened to the consent of the government, there's no consent for these people any longer, including myself. Eric, I, there's a bright silver lining that I see to this growing distrust both of government and of mass media, and that is I think that uh, for the first time in a long time, individuals like you and people like me, independent platforms, actually are starting to, uh, to come into the sunlight for a lot of people who are looking for some place to get uh, a, a less uh, manipulative point of view on what the world is doing. No question. I think, you know, people like you and I, you'll probably agree with me when I say that uh, I'm by no means omniscient, but I do my best to be honest and attempt to provide information uh, that's above board. I'm not trying to sell anybody any kind of agenda, suppress facts. I try to call them as I see them. And I think that this decentralization of media is a good thing. And I think perhaps it will lead to a decentralization of political authority as well. Perhaps the solution is for more local control, for people to be governed by their own communities, counties and cities, and, and not this being dragged along by a riptide because part of the country far, far away from you has decided it wants to live a certain way and is going to force you to live the way they want to live. I think that that's just profoundly wrong on, on, on a, both a moral as well as a practical level. Well, if there's a bright side to that sense of illegitimacy, and again, I'm looking back at you know the, the illegitimacy of... Uh, not just the presidency, but maybe maybe even uh, aspects of the federal government or even in, in some areas, state government, it's that people are finally reaching that point where they're going, enough of this. I can't yes. pretend that this is, this is something that I have given my consent to when I clearly haven't. I hope so. I really hope so. And this is why, to get back to where we started, I wish and pray and hope that more people will begin to engage in little acts of resistance which really are just little acts of not, not playing along by not wearing the holy rag unless they're absolutely forced to. The fact that there's a sign on the door doesn't mean you have to wear the holy rag. Walk in and show your face. If somebody says something to you, if they tell you that you have to have one on in order to shop, okay, I understand that. But engage in these little acts of disobedience. And the more of us who do that, uh, the sooner this thing could potentially be over. But if we just roll over and submit to it, it's never going to be over. No, that's, that's a good point. And, and the added benefit is, as people do this, tactics develop. People start to learn what works and what doesn't. I was, I was speaking with a friend last week who told me about how he approaches. When he goes into a store and someone comes, to a, comes up to him, uh, sir, you need to be wearing a mask, he doesn't stop to engage them in conversation. He simply mumbles something like, thank you for your concern, and keeps right on walking. That works, exactly. Yeah. And, and he said it works. Nobody has chased him down to have that conversation about the mask. They just, you know, okay, mm-hmm. well, there he goes. <laughs> Which yeah, they, the, much of this is reliant upon just social pressure and social shaming. 
that, uh, you know, people, most people, and this is human and understandable, are confrontation averse. They don't want to have to deal with somebody walking up to them and starting to berate them about something in a public space. So they just go along with it. Well, they shouldn't, because this is evil when you get down to it. This is an evil and malicious thing that's going on. It's about taking away our uh, control over our lives, which is to say taking, uh, taking control of our lives so that we have no life anymore. I don't want to live like this. Most people I know don't want to live like this. If we don't want to live like this, we've got to reassert our right to live again. Hear, hear. Eric Peters, I appreciate you being my guest each week on this show. I encourage my listeners, go to the links that I have in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. They'll take you right to Eric's site. Eric, until we meet again next week, have a great one. Good deal. You too, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, if nothing else, 2020 has been a year that I think has helped a lot of us clarify what matters most. And I don't mean that to sound fatalistic. You know, it's an old saying, well, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And I think there, there's been some of that, certainly. We've, we've definitely had some occasion to, uh, to sit back and go, okay, so <laughs> there's a lot of things that we took for granted in 2019 that maybe we learned in 2020 not to take for granted. But when it comes to Thanksgiving, I mean, look, uh, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, last week issued a message saying, hey, Let's focus on relieving some of the contention in society. And the suggestion that was given was uh, daily post on social media things for which you hashtag give thanks. And I'm seeing a lot of good stuff. And I, gotta, I have to admit, it's pretty refreshing considering how toxic the political environment is, considering how contentious all the COVID-19 lockdowns have become. It's great to get a little bit of a break. I came across an article from John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute that had, I thought, a pretty good take, too, on how to celebrate Thanksgiving during a time when people are, well, struggling, for lack of a better word. And John can come on pretty strong. I mean, look, the, the guy is, is a marvelous truth teller. Um, one of the things I admire about him is he does not sugarcoat anything. He he just serves it straight up, bitter as it may be, but uh, but he strives to tell the truth as best he can, and, and I have to admire that ability to speak unpopular truths at a time where there's a cost associated with that. But I love his suggestion. Actually, he has several suggestions of what we could be doing this Thanksgiving to celebrate in the midst of the toxic politics and the COVID-19 lockdowns. He starts with a quote from John Lennon that says, War is over if you want it. And then John Whitehead says, If there were ever a year filled with an abundance of bad news and a shortage of good news, 2020 would take the prize. Between the toxic political theater, pandemic scares, nationwide lockdowns that smack of martial law, a roller coaster economy, and the ever present menace of the police state, it's been a hard, heart wrenching, stomach churning kind of year overrun with too much hate and too little tolerance. 
He says it's been a year in which tyranny took a few more steps forward, freedom got knocked down a few more notches, and politics and profit margins took precedence over decency, compassion, and human kindness. He says now we find ourselves at this present moment overwhelmed by all that is wrong in the world and missing the fellowship of family and friends kept apart by COVID-19 restrictions and concerns. No wonder this Thanksgiving finds so many struggling to reflect and give thanks for what is good. After all, how do you give thanks for freedoms that are constantly being eroded? How do you express gratitude for one's safety when the perils posed by the American police state grow more treacherous by the day? How do you come together as a nation in Thanksgiving when the powers that be continue to polarize and divide us into warring factions? Well, he says, here's what I've learned from living in a small community. We're talking population 1500 for the past year. You don't have to agree on politics or subscribe to the same religious beliefs or have the same demographic makeup in order to live peaceably with one another. He says these small-town people don't have a preponderance of fancy cars or advanced degrees or six-figure salaries or committees aimed at discussing problems to death. And yet they've mastered the art of getting along. They make no secret about their views on politics and religion and anything else on their minds, and yet they remain friendly, neighborly, respectful of those with opposing views, even when they wholeheartedly disagree. Yes, America, he says, there is a life beyond politics, and it can be wonderful if you just give it a chance. So here's his suggestion for how to celebrate Thanksgiving. I think this is one worth considering. John W. Whitehead says, here's what I suggest. This Thanksgiving, do yourself a favor and turn off the talking heads. Tune out the politicians and take a deep breath. Then try this exercise in gratitude. Find something to be thankful for about the people and things in your community for which you might have the least tolerance or appreciation. Oh, he threw a curve at you. Instead of just rattling off a list of things you're thankful for that sound good, John Whitehead says dig a little deeper and acknowledge the good in those you may have underappreciated or feared. He says when it comes time to giving thanks for your good fortune, put your gratitude into action. Pay your blessings forward with deeds that spread a little kindness, lighten someone's burden, brighten some dark corner. Engage in acts of kindness. Smile more. Fight less. Build bridges. Refuse to let toxic politics define your relationships. Focus on the things that unite instead of that which divides. And then he says, do your part to push back against the meanness of our culture with conscious compassion and humanity. Moods are contagious. That's true for the good and the bad. They can be passed from person to person. So can the actions associated with those moods, the good and the bad. Even with COVID-19 restrictions in place throughout the country, there is still so much good that can be done to help those in need. And I love this next line. He says, be a hero, whether or not anyone ever notices. Acts of benevolence, no matter how inconsequential they might seem, can spark a movement. He quotes psychologist Philip Zimbardo, who says, each of us has an inner hero we can draw upon in an emergency. If you think there is even a possibility that someone needs help, act on it. You may save a life. You are the modern version of the Good Samaritan that makes the world a better place for all of us. 
And Zimbardo says all it takes is one person breaking away from the fold to change the dynamics of a situation. He says, once anyone helps, then in seconds others will join in because a new social norm emerges. This is what Zimbardo refers to as the power of one. Now, Melissa Berkeley in Psychology Today says, if you find yourself in an ambiguous situation, resist the urge to look to others and instead go with your gut instinct. If you think there's even a possibility that someone is in need, act on it. At worst, you'll embarrass yourself for a few minutes, but at best, you will save a life. Now, think about what's being said here. In other words, don't turn away from suffering. Even smiling at a stranger in these fearful times can be a revolutionary act. All it takes is one person to start a chain reaction. And here he shares a story of a few years ago in Florida, a family of six, four adults and two young boys, were swept out to sea by a powerful rip current in Panama City Beach. Now, there was no lifeguard on duty. Police were standing by, waiting for a rescue boat. The few people who tried to help ended up stranded as well. So the folks on shore grouped together and formed a human chain. What started with five volunteers grew to 15, then 80 people, some of whom couldn't even swim. One by one, they linked hands and stretched as far as their chain would go. The strongest of the volunteers swam out beyond the chain and began passing the stranded victims of the rip current down the chain. One by one, they rescued those in trouble and pulled each other in. And John Whitehead says there's a moral here for what needs to happen in this country. If we can only band together and prevail against the riptides that threaten to overwhelm us. He says there may not be much we can do to avoid the dismal reality of the police state in the long term. Not so long as the powers that be continue to call the shots and allow profit margins to take precedence over the needs of people. But he says in the short term there are things we can all do right now to make this world, or at least our small corner of it, a little bit kinder, a lot less hostile, and more just. In other words, it's never too late to start making things right in the world. Now, I don't know, does does that strike you as, well, that just is fear-mongering, you know, about the police state? I don't think he's wrong. I think he's actually, you know, done the best job of documenting the emerging police state Of anybody I know, but I love his suggested solution. Mainly because it doesn't require we've got to get this big political movement and then we got to elect people to this office and then we got to demand this policy be enacted. No, it actually starts with individuals like you and me. And it doesn't have to be something big and grand, it just starts with opening our eyes, looking around us, and recognizing when someone is suffering, when someone's in need whether you know them or not, recognizing an opportunity to help another person. I love that quote he gave from Melissa Berkeley in Psychology Today. If you think there's even a possibility that someone is in, is in need, act on it. What's the worst that's going to happen? Well, you might embarrass yourself for a few minutes. But at best, you'll save a life. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this, and I think if, uh, if like me, you have found yourself struggling to, to maintain a sense of happiness or, or joy or even just balance this year. This may be one of the things that we can do that's very easy, doesn't require permission. All it requires is a little calibration of our ability to see the people around us as people, as children of God, and people that uh, we can bless if we are so inclined. 
I don't know why, but that just rings very true to me. That's why I'm sharing it with you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for reveling in Wrong Think with me today. By the way, you can find John Whitehead's essay that I shared in the last segment in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It'd be worth your time to spend a little time there perusing the show notes. I always have more information than I have time to get to in the course of, uh, you know, a two-hour daily show. So I would encourage you, take a look at it. If you like the articles, if you find them useful, worthwhile, of value, feel free to share them. That's what they're there for. They're there to provide a little help, a little light, a little truth, a little encouragement. Annie Holmquist is the editor for intellectualtakeout.org. If you haven't subscribed to uh, to get their their daily updates or if you haven't checked them out on a daily basis, you're really missing out on some tremendous writers and they cover a lot of different areas, culture, education, family, philosophy, politics, western civilization, just just for starters. And Annie has, I think, a, another really timely topic, given that uh, we're, we're all feeling a little bit of stress, a little bit of duress this year, you know, with mask mandates and what have you. Lots of reminders, don't celebrate Thanksgiving. I mean, it's like I, I've actually taken to where I'm calling our, our family's Thanksgiving get-together. I don't even know how big it's going to be, but I've already started to refer to it as the super spreader event, since that's pretty much what it's seen as in the eyes of some. How do you operate and maintain a sense of balance or, for that matter, even a sense of joy in times like this? I think Annie Holmquist has an answer worth considering here. She says laughter will win against totalitarianism. She says the gray, gloomy days of November have set in, and this year it seems harder than ever to banish them. She says I was feeling the oppression of these gray days when a note from a friend landed in my inbox. He made some joke in relation to election voter fraud, and suddenly I found myself giggling. Now, she says, of course, voter fraud in and of itself is not funny. But she said it struck me that the ability to laugh about it and other difficulties in this dismal year may be one of our saving graces. It may be another form of simple, homespun, civil disobedience in which everyone may freely engage. And she says this point was further driven home when another friend, friend rather, shared a few memes circulating on the Internet. Now, these memes parody the now common side of Donald Trump's tweets being contradicted by messages from big tech. And she has the perfect example here from uh, Trump. They wouldn't let Republican poll washers, watchers into the counting rooms. Unconstitutional. And right under it is the big exclamation mark. This claim about ex- election fraud is disputed. Thanks, Twitter. Poking fun at the self-anointed fact-checkers on social media, people started creating memes using historical examples and common-sense statements to bring humor to the tragic situation of censorship. So here are a couple of examples. Here's one from, and these are all tweets, by the way. Galileo Galilei, the earth revolves around the sun. Oh, there's that exclamation part. This claim is disputed by theology experts. Here's another good one. Winston Churchill, June 4th, 1940. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. 
we shall never surrender. Oh, fact check. Germany is the projected winner of the Second World War. See results of battles in France, Belgium, and Luxembourg. (laughs) Here's another good one. Edward Dutton, we should demand evidence to believe what the elites say. Oh, here's the fact check. Experts agree that evidence is not necessary if you are an expert. Now, Annie Holmquist says such memes play into conventional wisdom that the left can't meme, meaning they no longer have a functional sense of humor. Spectator uh, Australia notes, humor was once the domain of the left, but as leftism became synonymous with being offended by everything, the right became the only political side which could still see the funny side of life. Evidence of this development is seen in Stephen Colbert's post-election monologue. Now, Colbert is allegedly a comedian, but there was little to uh, laugh at in a presentation in which he dressed in black and broke into tears over what he called Trump's fascist tendencies in contesting the election results. So why the switch? Why is it that despite the triumphs those on the left are achieving, not only in political office but in censorship of opposing views, they still seem unable to laugh or take a joke? Annie Holmquist says the late journalist and satirist Malcolm Muggeridge shed some light on that question in his essay, America Needs a Punch. He declares that humor is normally distasteful to those set in authority over us. When the governed laugh, he continues, the governors cannot have, cannot but have an uneasy feeling that they may well be laughing at them. Thus, the measure of a free society, Muggeridge explains, is the extent to which it permits ridicule. The less laughter there is, the more totalitarian the society has become. In drawing this connection, Mugridge encourages us to embrace humor as it is our most potent weapon in the fight for freedom. He says the ultimate safeguard is perhaps not atomic weapons, larger and better bases, louder radio stations, but more fools. The foolishness of man, Blake wrote, is the wisdom of God. And it may well be that those who seek to suppress or limit laughter are more dangerous than all the subversive conspiracies which the FBI has or ever will uncover. Laughter, in fact, is the most effective of all subversive conspiracies, and it operates on our side. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says numerous difficulties and even subversive conspiracies are staring us in the face right now. Many so daunting that it seems useless even to question them. Yet when we find ourselves in that attitude, we need to start laughing and looking for the humor in the absurdity of it all. And so she says, laugh and have fun when the healthy must wear masks, in spite of research showing they do little to prevent the spread of disease. Laugh at the hypocrisies of elite leaders who say commoners can't gather for the holidays, but who then attend expensive parties with their own friends. Laugh at your own holiday gathering, even if it's just with a few members of your own household, or the friends you chat with on Zoom if you're alone. Share jokes and play games and just be silly. She says, a merry heart, after all, doeth good like a medicine. Spreading that bit of medicine around may do a world of good for a nation that's suffering from a lack of freedom. Now, I'm not trying to uh, advocate for mean-spirited humor or derogative kind of humor. But I do believe that laughter at those who suppose themselves to be so important and so in charge, those who know best, that is the hardest thing for them to tolerate. They can understand if people push back and are angry. That actually empowers them. Because when you become angry, 
You know, some people become violent and then it's the excuse, well, I had to crack down because you were, you were misbehaving. But they have no counter for ridicule. It bugs them worse than open rebellion. Because it's a form of rebellion that's not only uh, peaceful, but it's actually contagious. So sharpen up that sense of humor. Be willing to laugh at yourself. That's, that's half the battle right there. You know, the, the comment in here about how the left lost its ability to laugh when it took to being offended by everything. You have an advantage over those who choose to be offended at everything if you have the kind of self-control and the kind of attitude that allows you to laugh at yourself. Your foibles, your mistakes. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a matter of, you know, not taking yourself so dang seriously. All right. One final note here. This is an article I'm including in today's show notes from Ryan McMacken. It's titled, The Pandemics Are Over When the Public Decides They're Over. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here, but the gist of this is there are a couple of different types of pandemics. There are social and medical pandemics. And this is a, a quote from, uh, I don't remember who this is, from the, this is an article in the New York Times. Oh, Dr. Jeremy Green, who's a historian of medicine at Johns Hopkins. He says, pandemics typically have two types of endings, the medical, which occurs when the incidence and death rates plummet, and the social, when the epidemic of fear about the disease wanes. And there's some great historical perspective about the Asian flu pandemic of 1957 and 1958. And how people didn't succumb to fear as we have seen with COVID. Now, I think a lot of that has to do with the way that we receive information and the way that that information is presented to us. There are risks we're perfectly willing to accept every day. Every time you get in a vehicle, you are at risk. But we say, well, that's, a, that's in, an acceptable form of risk. Well, guess what? There are acceptable forms of risk even when it pertains to COVID. And this is the point that Ryan McMacken is making. When the case numbers and the deaths and hospitalizations drop, yes, we will have a good medical measure by which to say, okay, this pandemic has run its course. But the most important aspect is the social pandemic. That one ends when we stop fearing a disease and fearing freedom and we start living our lives again. There's nothing reckless about it, but it is a decision that uh, is ultimately in our hands. Maybe we should consider making some different choices. This is The Brian Hyde Show.